This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Peers, and welcome back to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Today's episode is all about identity, what it means, why we're fixated on solving it, and if we should even try to. Joining us to share her journey with identity is the founder and CEO of Indian inspired skincare brand, Avrani, Rushi Roy. With humility and humour, Rushi reflects on the confusion she felt as a teen trying to navigate cultural expectations as an Indian and an American woman, why rebellion in school is often a sign, not a write-off, and how we can gain more clarity on who we really are as individuals. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Rushi. Rushi, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Of course. So, you know, you and I recently connected over LinkedIn and when I looked to you and all of the amazing work you're doing in the retail and e-com space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you. No, it's an honor. Amazing. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Rushi Roy. Uh, I was born and raised in Detroit, in the surrounding Detroit area, Uh, but my parents are immigrants from India. So they moved from Kolkata to Detroit in the late 80s, uh, and that's why me and my brother were born in Detroit. But uh, we would go back to India every year to see our extended family. So my grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, they all still to this day live in Kolkata. And so Uh, kind of felt like I grew up in two different cultures. I had the Midwest suburbia where most people around me were Caucasian. And then my sort of Indian culture, which I was fortunate enough to have a tight-knit Bengali community in the area, uh, was very different from school and activities and sports, right? I didn't really feel like I kind of belonged in either. Uh, And I had a very... Uh, rebellious 
upbringing, I would say, or, or childhood. And I think that streak still runs in me uh, to this day. It manifests differently. But of course, um, I kind of felt like I didn't fit in either in the sense of not really being really wonderful at any given one thing. Um, and then also feeling like I was letting my parents and the community down by, you know, not being outstanding in something. And uh, I, I think that that led to experiences that in many ways shaped who I am today and Avrani and the future. Um, but the most important thing is this sense of self-esteem and confidence that uh, I am now so passionate about unleashing in women because I do think that my story isn't, you know, that unique in the sense that we're all kind of facing a little bit of uh, battle around who we are and any given label, uh, especially women who are oftentimes put in a box, whether we like it or not. Uh, and so Avrani in many ways is the beauty brand that I needed as a girl growing up to remind me that, you know, I am seen, I am celebrated the way I look, uh, might not be celebrated uh, in the media around me, but that doesn't have anything to do with my value or my worth as an individual. Um, and that sort of self-discovery and um, maturity phase, kind of gaining that confidence to be myself, uh, is exactly what inspired me to build something like a brawny. Because uh, as you can see right now, um, I'm, I'm not your typical beauty founder, I would say. I'm, I wasn't the one who um, even really knows how to wear makeup. I just learned what a primer was like two months ago. Like, oh, you're supposed to do that before. Um, but I, I think that that's now a point of pride and differentiation for me because to me, beauty has always been about wellness, right? If we take care of ourselves, uh, fully mind, body, spirit, then we feel the most beautiful. We don't necessarily need to take on makeup or, or something. And I love the idea of makeup. It's a beautiful creative expression, but it's not who we are, right? And it's not connected with us from the inside. And so that's what I really want to bring back with Avrani is that definition of beauty is from the inside out and really is a part of wellness. That it's not, you know, selfish to be spending time on your own beauty. It's in fact um, the most wonderful thing you can do, which is honor yourself and love yourself completely. And uh, I'm excited to spread that message through Avrani. Oh, oh my goodness, Rashi. It's even better than I thought. You know, obviously I've looked at the brand and looked into you a lot. And oh my goodness, just the way you say it, it just, it's so touching and it's just so true, you know? And I'm also someone, unfortunately, who, um, I don't wear too much makeup and I don't, not even too sure what the different oh, things but are. Your skin is so, so beautiful. Oh, I'm just no. looking at you right now and. Oh, oh my you're God. too it's, kind. It's <laughs> you're too kind. But I, I love that you're owning it. I love that you're on this mission to change, you know, the perception around beauty and you're doing so, so authentically. So look, I, I oh, can't. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> so look, I can't wait to dive deeper into a runny and how it started and all that goodness. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? 
I love that you asked that. And I would also love to understand uh, how you came to those questions. Um, So my parents are hugely influential in in who I am and what I do. Um, As I said, my dad is an automotive engineer. He actually recently retired. So congrats to him. But he retired from Ford. Um, He is, for all intents and purposes, a genius. He's the smartest man I've ever met. It's very technical and um, just scientifically, mathematically, very astute. Uh, Of course, that comes with its costs in other areas of his personality, which uh, um, he'll hear me say and he'll own happily, but he is just extremely sharp and just mathematically um, wise. And my mom is, uh, she started as a professor, of economics. They're both actually PhDs. My dad is in solid mechanics and my mom in econ. And she started as a professor. Now she actually works at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, uh, working with health insurance companies. But um, they have both, you know, worked their whole lives. And that's really all I've ever seen as a child. And I think in many ways, Uh, It's the things our parents don't talk about or think are important that are the most influential, right, in our lives. And the uh, just work ethic and dedication to uh, pursuing not only education, but then uh, career in an effort to uh, get their kids educated and give the best to their kids uh, is a virtue that is very common in the Indian culture and one that I was privileged enough to benefit from uh, growing up. Oh my goodness. It's just so true. I think, you know, uh, lots of immigrant families and my parents were so similar, you know, it's just here in Australia, it's not the US, but it's the same kind of mentality. You know, it's, it's, we work really hard to make sure our kids get the best and all that amazingness and exactly how you put it was so right around, you know, how we get to benefit from all of their hard work. But in some ways, you know, I find it can be a little daunting, you know, as you set out on your own. Did you ever find that in the early years when you were you know, high school and then college, you know, oh my what, gosh. what was that time like for you? And talk us, talk us through, you know, Wushi the early days. Yeah. So, um, I'm so glad you asked this because I feel like, you know, even looking at my LinkedIn as an example, it's such a small part of my life. And it's interesting to see how much we even rely on things like someone's work history as a measure of who they are or what their lived experience is like. Um, but anyway, I uh, I grew up not really feeling like, A, I was good at anything uh, in particular in the sense of, you know, being really great at soccer or violin or, or the kind of things that the kids around me were good at or at least sort of felt like they had found their gift, whether it's dance or theater or whatever. I just, I never felt drawn towards any one thing. Uh, And as I said, we had a very tight-knit Indian community. And with all the benefits that come from that, which are incredible, it also comes with a lot of comparing. (laughs) And there's that um, underlying sort of uh, competitiveness that runs through not just the parents, but then the children of the parents in the sense of, oh, what is my kid doing? And look at 
how wonderful my kid is. And it kind of felt like, you know, I never really gave my parents uh, something to be proud of or that kind of conversation starter um, in those situations because I didn't sort of fit in a bucket in the kind of way I felt like everyone else did. Um, and so through that came just a lot of acting out. I was the type of kid who would just pull pranks for my own entertainment. So for example, like in art class, I, I just loved the glue gun, the idea of it melting <laughs> and art. It was just so fascinating to me. And so all I would do is just use the glue gun and watch the glue just melt. And my art professor or art professor, um, my teacher called my parents and were like, Rushi just went through four boxes of our glue. Like she's wasting our, our resource. They had to come in and we had like a whole sit down conversation around it. And it's, it's so interesting now to think about it in the sense of like, that's just a kid who's curious in a way that's inconvenient to you, but it's not like they're a bad kid. Right. And I think a lot of times, especially with the pressure that immigrant parents have of, you know, I'm doing all of this for them and kind of putting that weight on the kid to display sort of the ROI on the sacrifices. <laughs> it, you know what I mean? Um, it's a lot of pressure on both individuals in the sense that I, I need you to be proud in the way that you want me to, but that like that doesn't save that or preserve much room to be a kid and explore because you're kind of given the most risk-averse path to success, which is you know, study math and science, do your work, nod your head, follow the rules kind of thing, uh, because you don't want to risk chaos or, you know, at worst case, my kid is a failure, then I did all this for what kind of thing. And so kind of feeling like that as a kid, um, I think also freed me from some expectations early on. Like I, I mean, in the sense of, there are those kids who are kind of in the middle or doing okay, and they're kind of pushing on. And I almost feel like that's worse than just mm. sort of failing early. Because to be honest, uh, by the time I was in high school, you know, I, I, I was just the kind of kid who would just take my parents' car out when I was 15 with a permit because I felt like going for a joyride and like <laughs> things like that are just so silly. And then I would, you know, I. I got arrested and the the cops are calling my dad and he's just like, you know, beside him, what do I do with this child kind of thing? So the expectations were not so bad as I went into college of like, all right, she's at least, you know, going to school here, getting her life together. Um, so at that time, when I started at Indiana University, um, I kind of realized like, okay, I, I need to get my shit together, but I also need to figure out, you know, what am I good at? What I... What am I passionate about? And so that's what kind of led me towards pursuing business was um, just not knowing I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer and then kind of feeling like, all right, what else would my parents be proud of? Uh, but also aligns a little bit with my personality. Uh, and that's where I started started to like take things more seriously and be like, all right, I mean, you, you can't be messing around for so long, right? You have to get your life together in the sense that you have to sustain yourself and what are you going to do? And a sudden focus came out of me in a way that I didn't even recognize myself because as I said, as a kid, like I kind of just, I mean, whatever, just getting by kind of thing. Like I barely wow. graduated high school. And so wow. 
and and that was not from like an academic no. point of view. That was because I I skipped so much class. I didn't necessarily count towards like having the minimum number of days gone to school. It was like this crazy thing. Um, but it was once I sort of was like on my own and felt the freedom to explore that I got my focus. And so uh, I always th- think it's so interesting the way we kind of label and write off people as children. And in many ways, they sort of just become what you labeled them as opposed to trying to see if there's something else. How can we get better at not labeling people, ourselves? You know, how can we get better at that? Uh, the, that's the question, right? And I, I think the biggest challenge is we ourselves love to label, right? Because it's so yes. convenient. And that's a reason stereotypes even exist, because one or two things is an indicator generally for a lot of other things. And so I think it starts with the way we interpret other people and the way we treat other people based off of labels. Uh, but as soon as we're doing it, we can't expect others to not box us in, right? And and the challenge is like, how do we even, as women, as an example, show just how multifaceted we can be, right? Like it's it's a wild thing to imagine that like, just because you're a mother, you have to be a certain way, right? And then your whole identity is tied to this one word because it's convenient for everyone else, right? Um, oh, I face that all the time on, on many duet dimensions there, right? Because even starting this brand, it's like, I'm not just Indian, right? But I'm not just American. And how do I show that there's beauty in that lived niche oneness of Indian Americanness and not just to some of some of the parts, right? Because that's always going to end up with us lacking something, being a little bit of that, a little bit of this, right? We, we don't even give ourselves credit for one wholeness to begin with. It's just so true. And I think so many of us struggle with this on so many levels. I know I definitely struggle with labels and, you know, the the idea of being a CEO, that was so appealing to me until I realized like how tough it actually is. (laughs) I'm in the same boat right now. Oh my goodness. (laughs) OMG. Oh, yes. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the story. So you said, you know, you finally kind of gathered yourself as you headed to college. I think you, as you said, you're at Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. You did finance. You know, you later on ended up doing your MBA at the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania. You know, Talk to us a little bit about that transition for you, you know, from such a rebellious start, like kid, through to like <laughs> doing your MBA, like crazy. Talk to us a little bit, bit about the early days of college and then, um, and then the later days and how they shaped you. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny now, like you're even <laughs> saying this because I, even while I was at Wharton, which I just graduated in 2019, oh, I kind of even felt like, what am I doing here? I'm not like these people, you know what I mean? Like, am I sure I'm here? Even when I put on like a pen sweatshirt, I'm like, you really, <laughs> like, I, I still don't believe it fully because it's, it's, it is a very recent, um, I would say transformation in the sense that our formative years 
do just that. They form us so much that it's really, you know, it gets increasingly difficult to crack at that. Um, but as you had mentioned, I, I started taking things seriously in college because um, I realized that I didn't want to just do something ordinary. I think I started to see people starting to subscribe to, oh, there's, you know, this track at this company, and then I could, you know, get to this thing. And it's suddenly kind of shook me in the sense of like, I'm not trying to live, you know, that kind of nine to five life. Um, and then at the same time, it was just like, I, I still don't really know what I'm good at. So let me immerse myself in something very challenging and like, see if I float kind of thing. Um, and at the time, as I was pursuing finance, uh, investment banking was the prestigious thing to do. And especially coming from a big 10 school like Indiana, where we just so happened to have this really robust network that was really wonderful actually for funneling students into the industry. Um, the industry only really recruits from Ivy League schools. So it was this sense of exclusivity that was so alluring to me in the sense of really me, like maybe if I, you know, get my shit together, I could be there too. Like, here's an opportunity. You're at a school that can make it happen if you do it. And so um, I was excited by that challenge to myself. So my my freshman and sophomore year, I literally got less than a 2.0 GPA. Like it's very <laughs> embarrassing. Um, and, I mean, there was whole like correspondence with my family around, is, should she even sign up for another semester? It was wild. And then when I found like this opportunity, I got a 4.0 every semester because I wow. was like, I need to get this together. So in that sense, I'm like, okay, look what you can do if you're just trying, like that's what trying is. And so as I got in the industry um, and I started working at Goldman Sachs, there was also this level of uh, pride from my parents that I never felt before. So suddenly uh, I did give them something to contribute to those conversations, right? And it was all so wonderful and for, I was feeling that for the first time. Uh, so that was really difficult to sort of internalize alongside the fact that I was realizing I didn't really like this and I didn't want to pursue this for the rest of my life. So I then started feeling guilty a little bit of, you know, who am I to be in this amazing position? Look how far you got and, you know, don't fuck it up now kind of thing. <laughs> and so I kind of, I stayed in the industry. I've then I pursued uh, private equity after that. Uh, and it was about year five where I was like, okay, who am I doing this for really? Like, it's nice to hear when my parents brag about me now and stuff like that, but you know, they're not the ones sitting here at 4am doing this yeah. operating model on Excel. Right. <laughs> so it got to the point where I was like, okay, what's the most risk averse thing I can do right now? Like I, I want to just start fresh. Uh, but I don't necessarily have the audacity to do that fully. Let's go to business school. Uh, and so that was really what drove me to pursue it. And so um, coming from a place like Warburg, where it was also one of those places that only recruits from the Ivy Leagues, there were a lot of opportunities here where I was like, okay, let me, let me do something like that. And so I started at Wharton uh, the summer of 2017. Uh, and and realize like, okay, now's the time. We're in Philly. I don't know anyone here. Like, 
what's going to happen. And this is where, I mean, I truly believe the universe conspires for you and in the law of attraction, because I just so happened to meet my now co-founder, uh, Justin Silver, on the second day of school. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can I can keep talking here. I know I, I feel like I've been babbling uh, and you're listening so intently, but I just wanted to take a pause. Um, that that transition in my life was just like very drastic from the kind of kid I was in high school to college and getting increasingly sort of um, getting my self-esteem, I guess, built through the fact that, you know, I can do this. But then at the same time, realizing that this isn't for me, I need to do something else. It's all just so fascinating. And as you said, I'm really taking it in. It's uh, just, it really resonates with me personally as well. And I'm sure all of our peers out there listening. A question I've got for you is around this idea of identity. You know, you mentioned that it becomes harder and harder the longer you go down this kind of path of, you know, the identity you establish as a child or in high school. And, you know, how can we, if we feel like we're stuck, in a certain identity and we really feel like it's far gone. You know, how are we going to shift from here? How can we start to make that shift within ourselves? And then what are the, the, the I guess, low risk things we can start doing on the outside to, to really start to reflect that shift? Wow. That's a really wonderful question. Um, so the first thing I would say is in terms of, coming to terms with an evolving identity is to understand that it is forever evolving. I think there's this notion that uh, people can't change when in fact that it's most people don't want to change, right? And people don't want to change because it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to get different reactions from people by being different. Uh, there are so many things and as you mentioned, the longer you wait to change, the more and more you're establishing yourself as your status quo identity, the more you're making friends because of your status quo identity, and the more difficult it gets to leave that life and leave people. But the thing that uh, I try to remind myself of all the time is there's no growth in your comfort zone, right? But there's also no comfort in your growth zone. So if you're feeling too comfortable, that should be a signal that you might be getting complacent in some sort of way. What more can you be doing to make your life even better? Because otherwise you're just sort of signing up or resigning to being stagnant and staying the same, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But the important thing is to be conscious of that, right? To be aware that, okay, I'm happy with who I am. I just want to maintain this. It's important to be aware of that decision and to make that decision intentionally because otherwise life sort of then just dictates who you are for you, right? Could not agree more. And I think it's that, oh, you just said it so well. It's that awareness around it. You know, at what point in in your career, in your early stage career where you did five years as an investment banker, at what point did you gain that awareness? Uh, I would say it was very gradual for me. It started with, um, and this is going to sound so silly, but it's true. So I'll admit it. Uh, I started 
feeling some like emotions from reading certain like motivational quotes and stuff on Instagram. Like, so as an example, if I came across a a meme that was like, there's no growth in your comfort zone, there's no comfort in your growth zone, like something that would have been innocuous to me in my early twenties suddenly felt like it was speaking to me. If that makes sense. That's why I'm struggling to articulate. Um, I apologize, but like, that's what I mean by suddenly feeling like, wait a second, um, be yourself isn't some silly bullshit that people just say. There's some meaning behind it because you can become someone you don't recognize without your permission. And I think that that was starting to happen to me. Uh, I would say like three or four years into finance where I suddenly wasn't proud of a lot of decisions I was making. And I started to for example, uh, lie to my parents if they were like, are you stressed or whatever, I'd start dismissing them in that kind of way. And those things are very small, right? But over time, they they change your mindset and change who you are to the point where you can't really say that's not me because you're behaving too much like that sort of person, right? So I would say that that awareness came from starting to feel increasingly disconnected from my true self. And seeing those sorts of words of affirmation or quotes or those kinds of things suddenly feel like they were really speaking to me to snap out of it. Huge. Oh my goodness. I just, I'm absolutely loving this, Rushi. I think we're, you're touching on so many important points. You know, when you got to that point where you thought, oh my goodness, I didn't even know who I, I can't believe this is me almost. Like, why am I acting this way, et cetera, et cetera. From that time to, I guess, the shift to go and do your MBA and then the shift to actually start your own company, you know, how do you feel like, you know, for for one, how long of a period was that? And then secondly, how did you feel like you started to consciously make that shift? Yeah, um, that period of time was actually pretty quick because, as I mentioned, I happened to meet my co-founder so quickly. So we started the company simultaneously uh, with school. So uh, now it's been um, just over three years as of last fall that we have started working on this. Uh, And I have to say so much of that personal development that I'm continuing to undergo is coming as a result of growing this business, right? And so there's a lot of almost amplified uh, personal growth that I get to experience by nature of of building a brand and a company. Um, And so I would say, I mean, for me, from start to finish then, it's less than five years. So to imagine myself even five years ago to be where I'm at today, I I would say you're crazy. I I couldn't imagine something like that. So um, for, for people who are even feeling like, you know, what's the point in changing or shifting because... Uh, it's never going to happen. It's like if you put the discipline and focus in to make it happen, then literally anything is possible. And once again, there's like another cliche phrase that I would think is totally harmless around anything's possible. But truly, it's where you put your time and attention that creates the destiny, right? And the more that we sort of ignore that and just stay stagnant, then we're creating our own reality of, of sameness. 
Yes. Everything you were saying, I'm like just <laughs> nodding my head. I know you guys, yeah. obviously, those listening in can't see me, but I just I, I absolutely love this. And you're, it's just so, so true. So I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about the business. So, you know, yeah. y- you said that it was as soon as you headed into um, to do to the Wharton School, you met your co-founder and it was all happening. Talk to us a little bit about the early challenges you faced getting the brand off the ground, perhaps that first six months, one year, and maybe the misconceptions you had around building a business. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so much there. I guess yeah. in the beginning, I would say um, the so many misconceptions. I think I'm realizing just like how little I actually knew at the time and am grateful that I didn't know all that I know now because it probably would have scared me out of trying it altogether. Um, I think the first biggest misconception is that you have to have a robust plan before you get started. You sort of get started once you get started. And by that, I mean, once you start thinking about what do I name this thing? Uh, let me get incorporated legally. Like these small steps that kind of feel like you're not doing anything, you are starting and that is getting you closer to it. So the the misconception around, okay, I'm going to open a business, have the plan perfect, and then, you know, start generating revenue is outrageous. But that is, that is the conception, right? And yeah. to even a lot of people who are close to, uh, the world of business or the industry uh, happen to think that. And so I I think the biggest thing I was unprepared for was the constant learning and adapting to my mistakes and failures. And what that looks like in the beginning is um, sort of ignoring it and pretending like it doesn't exist and feeling indignant about what's happening to you. <laughs> so it, it goes on for a bit when you're like, life's not fair. That's their fault or, Oh, you know what I mean? Just like basically being defensive, uh, that you then start starting to feel like there's nowhere else to look, but inward of like, do I actually want this enough to keep going? And if I do, what does that even mean? Uh, I, I feel like that kind of cycle happens to me now almost, you know, on a monthly basis of a new challenge or a new disappointment that gets me to question like, okay, do you want this or not? Because you can stop anytime you want. You're really, you're signing up for this yourself. And if you do want it, then, then stop thinking that, you know, the world is against you or that, you know, this is so hard because you can opt out anytime you want and go get a job, a regular job, right? There's a re- there's something pushing you to get up every day and want to do this. And uh, by that same token, it's, it's a long-term game, right? There's not an instant gratification. Uh, we tend to hear about even businesses these days, um, you know, having such hyper growth, like in less than a year, they have you know, 10 million in sales are these outrageous stats. And the fact that we see so much of it, we tend to think that that's the norm. And then when we are not experiencing that, we feel like inadequate and um, insecure and all those sorts of things. But once again, you're backed into a corner and you look inward and say, "What? well, why are you doing this? Is it for that headline news? It, did you want to make 10 million this year? Is that why you did it? And it's just one of those constant sort of, 
demands on yourself to ask yourself to continue doubling down on yourself. Uh, and once you do that, it's it's very empowering because it makes you realize that you know you're in control, you know, of everything, of your reactions, your emotions, every situation you're in. It's because you put yourself there. You can get yourself out. Yes. How can we get better at owning it and Mm -hmm. taking responsibility for where we're at and what we're doing? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out for myself too. How can I get better at this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll share, I guess, like something I I still find challenging and, and something I'm working on is, um, my temper. So I, growing up, have always had a very short temper, and I react very quickly, um, erring towards the negative side. <laughs> and so uh, something I try to remind myself of now is this idea of I am very in my own head, and I have my interpretation of how things are going, but that's all it is, my interpretation and my view. And just because I think that's great and that's the right way to look at things doesn't mean that that's how everyone else will be thinking and feeling. And the reason why you're working together is so you can get the best and most out of your perspective. So you have to acknowledge that people are different from you and give them the benefit of the doubt of learning what their perspective is because Sometimes, and I've experienced many of the times, it's better than my own and one that I couldn't have imagined on my own. And so I started to realize that I'm not giving even myself or my team the freedom to get the most out of each other's talents because I still have a bit of my ego in the way of I know what's right already. You know what I mean? And so catching myself now, uh, as, as you're asking, like tactically, what do you do? I try to now be a lot more conscious and aware of my emotions and reactions. And when I do want to react and I like kind of feel that coming now, I, I sort of say like, okay, that has nothing to do with someone else. That's like a wound that's kind of asking to be healed almost and reminding you, that person just triggered you in some way. You need to solve what that trigger is internally first. So true. I love that. And I, you know, I think we all get to points where we're just triggered by things and it's so right. It's finding out what the root cause is and then working backwards from there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I love it. Oh my goodness, Rashi, you and I could talk all day and all night. It's so, so good. But I am mindful of your time. I've got a couple of final questions as we head into, um, you know, second half end of the episode. I think firstly, I just want to talk about, you've kind of already mentioned it, but it's, it's failures. And for you, you mentioned that it's really, it really is, you know, you're not short temper, but you're, you know, just the way you react to things, you know, what other failures have you experienced to date and how are you navigating and walking and working through them? Yeah. Um, well, the first order of things is shifting my mindset around failure. Um, failure of course has such a negative connotation and it's very heavy. Uh, 
So it's important to remember that failures are really just the universe trying to redirect you, telling you, nope, this isn't the way you're supposed to go and this isn't meant for you. Um, I think by reframing it that way, we start to appreciate our failures as kind of getting there or getting to the right answer more quickly, right? The longer you go without failure, the longer you're also plateauing, right? And as I had said, that gets comfortable, right? And comfort means you're not growing. And so once you sort of internalize that cycle and appreciate that failure for what it is, it gets much easier to navigate and easier to not have regrets about prior failures because those all together, even the ones I still carry shame over, are what brought me here today, you know, talking to you. And in this moment, I'm proud of myself. So how can I go back and change something? Because maybe it wouldn't have gotten me to this proud moment. Um, so I think the biggest thing around failure is really that mindset. And once that gets adjusted, it, it really changes everything. How can we get better at failure? Uh, by better, tell me a little more about what you mean by that. So how can we, how can we fail? How can we fail more often, um, be okay with it, you know, move forward from it and really just see it as a learning. Like how can we adopt this mentality that you talk about? You know, I think as you mentioned, it's so tough. It's so hard. We're like, we don't want to be in the wrong. We don't want to have done this not right. Yeah. How can we shift that? Yeah. So two things, the first I want to focus on more. So I'll say the second one. Uh, the second one is I think we should celebrate each other's failures more in the sense of let's get comfortable talking about that. Uh, I think that we tend to, even, you know, with our closest friends and especially family, uh, don't like to do that, not just because we are defensive, but because we don't want them to worry. Right. And that sort of breeds that dishonesty in ourselves uh, around it, right? Because if we're uncomfortable talking to our parents about it, then we're uncomfortable ourselves with that thing, right? Um, But the the second thing I think is when, when you're asking how can we get more comfortable with it is to start, just start small and start to see the sort of ripple effects. And I'll give you an example. Um, I, I had a lot of pride and as I said, I don't like admitting when I'm wrong, uh, and not necessarily that it's uncomfortable for me, but I didn't really grow up with a lot of people doing that. The smartest people that I would look up to didn't admit when they were wrong and I looked up to them, so I can't do that either. Right. And a lot of things sort of uh, validate that notion that admitting when you're wrong is a sign of weakness. Uh, but when I started even, and as I had alluded to, so much growth has happened because of the business. Uh, when I started building out my team, uh, I started to appreciate the power of admitting when I'm wrong because it gives permission to everyone else to do the same thing. And the idea of uh, admitting that is also 
so much more an act of courage than an act of weakness, right? Because we start to see that it's really the strongest people that don't care when they're wrong. It's it's those of us who do get uncomfortable with it that need that extra work on it and growth. It's so hard though. Like I fully understand, <laughs> you know, and I think those of us who, you know, so many of our peers out there listening, high achievers, those who are doing amazing things in these phenomenal corporate roles or still running companies. And, it, you know, it's, it's people like us who really need to take a moment and actually go, you know what? No, it is when I'm vulnerable and it is when I go, Hey, look, I, I stuffed up. And I think as, as a leader in general, it's, it's what we, I mean, at least I'm learning it's as what we have to do so often. Um, yes. yes. Oh my goodness. I love it. Oh, Rishi, you know, over the last three years you've in business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. And most notably you were featured, featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list of last year of 2020, which is so cool to see. What are three key pieces of advice that you'd give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Yeah. Um, uh, the first piece of advice is very simple, but one I, I still need myself, which is it's just relax. I think there's a lot of, of pressure um, to achieve certain things in a certain time frame. Um, but as I'm starting to appreciate as I'm getting older that, you know, we're all on our own journeys and own timelines and really comparison is just such a fruitless waste of energy. Um, I, I'm starting to relax because I'm trusting myself more. And that's the thing that, you know, I would tell my younger self and, and your audience. Um, another piece of advice is around one I actually shared with you, but I, I love the mantra so much. It's there is no comfort in your growth zone and no growth in your comfort zone. And so I think that once we uh, sort of articulate that to ourselves and realize, okay, I am signing up for growth, we need to remind ourselves of that every time we get uncomfortable. And that's the cha most challenging part. So um, that that's definitely a mantra I'm, I'm still using. Uh, the last piece of advice I would say is just to uh, believe that you will figure it, figure it out because you always have. And that goes as a sort of delineation of a quote that I love and I've been sharing a lot lately, uh, which is, uh, let me fall if I must fall, the one who I will become will catch me. Um, and that just sort of confirms that level of faith and not just the universe, but yourself to be able to navigate mistakes uh, in the same way you give yourself the forgiveness of the mistakes you've made in the past. Oh, so well said. So great. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Rishi, for the phenomenal work that you've done and that you're doing, you know, for your continued growth and for showing us in particularly as women and, and women of color that we, we can get there. And just because we were someone when we were younger, it doesn't mean it's who we have to be today. And for that, we really appreciate you. Oh my gosh. I couldn't have said it better myself. I love that message. Thank you for having Michelle. Of course. This was fun. 
amazing. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, and that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? What is the value? Um, I would say it's uh, the value of a life of joy. I think that's what joy really is and living life to the fullest extent. So uh, to any degree, you're not sort of pursuing your passions and what you care about. That's just chipping away at your your own uh, potential joy. I love it. Oh, Rushi, we've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and Avrani? Yes, of course. So you can check out our website. It's our um, our only store right now. So avrani.com, A-A-V-R-A-N-I.com. Uh, and follow us on Instagram, our, our main social channel. We're constantly sharing you know, behind the scenes updates and a little bit more about myself and my team as we go. Uh, and that's just the handle is at Avrani. Um, yeah. So you can find us more about us then. Yeah. Perfect. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much again, Rushi. It's been so awesome. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at the Peers Project. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, Peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>